Hello, and welcome to episode 51 of Tech Swamp. There are a few things that will be different this episode, starting with me. Regular listeners of the pod can probably tell that I'm not Alex, the regular host of Tech Swamp. And for those who don't know, I'm Caitlin, and I'm going to be filling in for Alex this time around. Filling in for me is the newest addition to the membership team, Cassandra, our membership coordinator. Hey, Cassandra, welcome to the pod. Hey, thanks for having me. And Brad, what's up? I think this is this, the part where I'm supposed to say membership chillin'. Oh my gosh, it's gone viral. Membership Whoa. chillin'. I love it. And obviously, like I said earlier, I'm Caitlin. Um, so this month, we're going to be joined by Matt Schwartz, the policy associate here at the App Association, for a chat about the new EU-US privacy agreement and what all of this means for small businesses in the app economy around the world. But before we get into that, we're going to hit tech history and run through some DC headlines. May 22nd, 1980. 42 years ago this month, Pac-Man was born. A new game called Puckman was tested in a movie theater in an arcade in Japan and was a smash hit back in May of 1980. Now, after a few tweaks, it was released as Pac-Man on October 10th in the United States as the fan favorite that we know and love today. And fun fact, Pac-Man was specifically developed to be popular with women Because apparently most video games at the time had like a war or sports theme and didn't really pull in a a diverse group of players. So Pac-Man was the first video game popular with both men and women. And because of that, it was like the first ever video game that became a social phenomenon. By the 90s, Pac-Man generated over $2.5 billion, becoming one of the highest grossing video games of all time. And the rest is tech history. That sound means it's time for What's Brewing in D.C. Brad and Cassandra, what are the top tech headlines? Earlier this month, Senator Michael Bennett introduced a bill that would give big tech its own federal watchdog. The Digital Platform Commission Act would establish a new commission aimed at protecting consumers from bad business practices within big tech. If passed and signed into law, the new agency would have the power to interrogate the algorithms powering major tech platforms and have the ability to set new rules ensuring companies are transparent about how they handle decisions around content moderation on their platforms. This comes after some lawmakers in both chambers have called for a new privacy regulator within the Federal Trade Commission. We'll be sure to keep you posted on the path of this legislation in future episodes of TechSwamp. The District of Columbia is suing Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg for his role in the Cambridge Analytica data breach. Attorney General Carl Racine announced the lawsuit on Twitter earlier this week, saying, Our investigation shows extensive evidence that Zuckerberg was personally involved in failures that have led to the Cambridge Analytica incident. This lawsuit is not only warranted, but necessary. Misleading consumers, exposing their data, and violating the law come with consequences, not only for companies that breach that trust, but also corporate executives. For more information, including the official complaint, head to the show notes. Some good news out of the White House. More accessible and affordable broadband. As part of the bipartisan infrastructure law, the Affordable Connectivity Program will lower the price of high-speed internet through private sector commitments. 
Policymakers from both sides of the aisle worked with large providers like AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon, in addition to smaller providers in more rural areas, to reduce internet costs for tens of millions of American households by up to $75 a month. For more information on the program, including how to sign up, head to the show notes. And that's all for What's Brewing. And as we mentioned earlier, joining us today for our policy deep dive is Matt Schwartz, the policy associate here at the App Association. And he's joining us for a chat about the most recent action around the EU-US privacy agreement. Hey, Matt, thanks for joining us once again on TechSwamp. Thanks for having me. Always great to have you. Um, so real quick, can you just give us a little bit of background about like how we got here with the current framework uh, that we're going to be discussing? Maybe give us a little TLDR of, of what we've seen in the past couple years leading up to this point. Definitely. And it's, it would be very easy to do the too long part of the too long didn't read, so I'll try and keep it short. <laughs> but the technical name for this this new agreement that we're talking about is the EU-US Transatlantic Data Privacy Framework. I think the kind of key takeaway from the agreement and the press release and all of the material that's surrounded this new agreement, at least for our members, is that the Privacy Shield program is going to get a restart. And so the Privacy Shield agreement had been in place um, from July 2016 until around July 2020. Uh, and it basically allowed U.S. companies to self-certify that their data practices um, when data was entering the U.S. Uh, from the EU was compatible with the level of protection that that same data uh, received when it was in the European Union. So it was basically just a legal framework for companies uh, to transfer data from the EU to the U.S. without running afoul of e- uh, EU privacy law, which you know, as we all know, is maybe a little bit ahead of where we are in the U.S. Um, and so I think for that very reason, uh, EU privacy advocates were uh, never all that pleased with the, the data of, of EU citizens coming into the U.S., even with the Privacy Shield Agreement, because there were certain things that even a company that was really doing all it could um, could not protect against, and and that includes things like um, collection of the data uh, by U.S. surveillance agencies, um, and so those EU advocates, uh, led by a man named Max Schrems, sued to overturn the legality of the Privacy Shield Agreement, uh, just as he had actually done with the the predecessor agreement as well, which was called the Safe Harbor privacy principles, and they ended up winning uh, both those cases. And so uh, the court that made the decision, the European Court of Justice, struck down the agreement saying that it was an invalid mechanism for transferring data uh, based on those concerns that we talked about, about how U.S. surveillance agencies could request consumer data. Um, And so that left us uh, for the last two years, basically, without uh, an easy mechanism for companies to effectuate data transfers between the two regions. And that's, you know, data transfers are, are, are just simply how the digital economy functions in this day and age. A lot of companies collect data from one place and process it in another place uh, for a variety of reasons, cost, contractual agreements, um, 
et cetera, et cetera. So if we, if we really want to get into the weeds, there's there are a variety of other potential mechanisms that companies could use to transfer data, um, but for a bunch of reasons, they're not really feasible for, for small companies like our members to use. And so we have been effectively waiting on a new agreement for a while now. Interesting. Thank you for that insight. Uh, can you break it down a little bit in a sentence or two, maybe in layman's terms? Uh, what did the court mean with the invalid mechanism for transferring data? Was this decision made to protect a certain group of citizens or related to something else? Yeah, so this is where we can kind of really get into the weeds if we wanted to. But essentially, the court was referencing the fact that in the U.S., um, we have laws such as the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or FISA uh, and certain executive orders as well that allow domestic intelligence agencies to collect or <clears throat> request bulk information for national security uh, and defense reasons. So at the same time, the U.S. does not provide too many options for businesses to contest uh, the collection uh, of that information or for individuals whose information is being collected to seek redress if they believe that they've been unlawfully targeted by the collection. So essentially, it's hard for U.S. citizens to, to have their day in court about this. And so the court's decision was, was based around that fact, um, basically that the U.S. legal system did not provide appropriate avenues for EU citizens um, whose data might have been caught up in one of those intelligence requests to contest that decision. And now we could you know, probably quibble uh, and talk about how the fact that EU intelligence agencies might do many of these same things and perhaps their redress mechanisms aren't up to par either, um, but that was a decision of the court. So, uh, you know, probably underlying all of this as well is the fact that the EU has been consciously trying to differentiate itself from the U.S. when it comes to digital regulation generally. You know, they have the GDPR, we don't have a federal privacy rule. And so I think there was probably a bit of that mixed in as well, um, just the sense that in the EU, in their minds at least, um, they take things a little bit more seriously than we do. So we've been without a framework for about two years. Um, what has that looked like for small businesses in the app economy like our members? Yeah, so I alluded to this before, but um, it's been difficult and there's been a lot of uncertainty for, for smaller players as they've, as they've tried to negotiate this kind of gap in coverage. Um, you know, we like to say that the collapse of the privacy shield disproportionately affected small and medium-sized enterprises because they made up 70% of uh, the companies that, that were using it. And so, you know, the bigger players did have these other fallback mechanisms, um, such as the standard contractual clauses, which are basically these really dense legal documents that uh, make all these promises that the company will contest any data collection request from the government uh, to the last death and, and all of these other things, um, which are basically just not an option for our members given how extensive they are and how much legal oversight you need to make them work. You essentially need a whole legal department uh, to, to underpin those, those uh, standard contractual clauses. And so I think the result has been that a lot of folks have likely just paused their uh, data transfers 
from the EU, or at least have had to sink way more time and energy into coming up with a stopgap uh, stop mechanism than, than was necessary. Um, and so anecdotally, you know, I've talked to folks in this space who've had to stop things like transfers of genetic information that were being used to uh, research rare diseases, uh, just because of how unsure they were uh, of what to do amidst all this kind of legal uncertainty and new negotiations being forged and all of that. So I think it's presented a, a real issue for a lot of people and, and especially our members. Absolutely. Um, but not to not to, you know, be a Debbie Downer uh, with this, but I'm, I'm kind of sensing a pattern when we, we look at these kind of privacy agreements. Um, you know, we see things like Safe Harbor get turned over, then replaced uh, with the privacy shield that got pulled. What happens when we put out this new framework, this new agreement? Is it going to get the same treatment? How are we going to be able to, like, prevent this uh, uncertainty from happening over and over again? Yeah, it's true that this has been a kind of a recurring problem, and then I, I, I think it's probably a safe bet to assume that this new agreement is also going to be subjected to the same treatment and, and it's going to get challenged at some point, because like I said, there are many still on the EU side that will kind of always uh, hone in on the fact that there's differences between our legal regime and the EU legal regime, um, and that's just going to make people unhappy. And, you know, as for how likely a challenge is, uh, is going to be, I think there's probably, um, you know, a few reasons to think that this might stand up better than previous agreements. Um, I think, you know, one part of this agreement uh, that's different from the others is that there's going to be an executive order uh, and regulatory changes to... Uh, create a new appeals agency that people are going to be able to use to challenge collection decisions. Um, so that's a totally new element of, of this new agreement. Um, and it's also just from a principle standpoint, none of the other previous agreements actually entailed legal changes to how the U.S. deals with the redress problem in, in collection uh, at intelligence agencies. So it is a major thing that we are getting those changes this time around. Um, now, I think people might quibble with the fact that some of these changes are coming via executive order um, and not through the legislative branch. Um, but I think, you know, given all that's going on in the U.S. Congress, realistically, this is the best that we could could have achieved um, at the end of the day. And um, you know, people forget that policymaking happens in, in all three branches um, and executive orders are legally binding. So I, I do think it's significant and hopefully it will stand up to, to a new challenge. Um, but I don't think we should delude ourselves into thinking that this is uh, not going to get challenged and everything's going to be smooth sailing from here on out. I just think that's the reality. So, you know, I think to sum up, I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that this is going to stand up it did take two years for this agreement to come together. And I know from talking to folks at the Department of Commerce um, that they took it really seriously. They obviously know more uh, what went into the, the court's decision originally than anyone else. And they were fighting this whole time to make sure that they could get an agreement that would stand up. And the same goes for the European Commission. So none of them want to see their agreement uh, fall flat on its face again. So that alone kind of makes me hopeful for the future. 
Absolutely. Well, I know that we can expect to see a draft uh, come out a little later this year, probably, but then there's going to be a whole process after that of refining the agreement and stuff. So we'll probably be chatting with you uh, later this year as a follow-up to this, a little part two. Um, But Matt, it was so great to have you join us on this episode of Tech Swamp. We very much appreciate you sharing your time and expertise with us. Of course. Thanks for having me yet again. And now it's time for Random Identifier. Cassandra, since you're new, you're up first. What do you have for us? Yeah, so um, I had a pretty exciting last uh, like five days outside of AppCon just happening. Um, Before AppCon, I went to go see Harry Styles in concert the first time. Um, I've been obsessed with him since I was like 12 years old. So that was an amazing moment of my life. And then um, I actually saw The Who in DC um the monday of apcon um and that was super cool too it was it was great to be able to see them before they uh retire forever from life so i have uh, to yeah know, that's all i have <laughs> i have to know how different were the audiences at both of these shows can you do a well, quick comparison <laughs> yeah so i mean basically the harry styles concert he sang his whole new album which is very like heavily disco inspired Okay. So yes. it was a big dance party, basically. Um, and then The Who, everyone was just chilling, drinking beer, and just sitting and watching the show. And it was very different vibes, but yeah, great. Both great. Yes, absolutely. There's like value in both of those kinds of shows. And but Brad, obviously, you're next on Random Identifier. You're probably going to have something music related. But before I kick it to you, Brad and I are very different showgoers, and it always cracks me up when we talk about shows and our experiences and what we value in them because they're so different, but we're both people that very much appreciate music. So I just, the duality of music lovers, you, you love to see it. Very true, very true. And it's awesome that you got to go to such drastically different concerts so close to one another, mm-hmm. even if they were both in large arenas. It's cool to get different experiences. For sure. So, Brad, what do you have? Is it music-related? Did I Was it a spoiler? Yes, it was a spoiler. And <laughs> I am going to talk about music. I know, it's a big surprise. Everyone <laughs> thought I was going to talk about something different. Um, Usually but, keeping up with the Kardashians, right? That's normally yes, what you go with. You know me. I DVR every episode. Yep. I should have said TiVo. That, that could have been even better. <laughs> um, Um, But anyways, there's this band called Dead, spelled D-E-H-D, out of Chicago, um, with a very cool surf rock vibe to them. And the lead vocalist is this woman with just such a a passionate and um, exciting voice. I wouldn't say it's the most technically impressive, but it fits the music really well as a like indie surf rock band. But their new album comes out this Friday. So um, very excited for that. They've already put out five singles. Would definitely recommend diving into them further if you have not. I think I've I've at least recommended this to Caitlin and, and Alex in the past. But now I'd like to pass that on to the listeners. I think that that's a great recommendation and extremely timely as I continue to update my summer playlist. <laughs> I love it. I always say if you add one of the, the bands that I talk about to one of your seasonal playlists... That's the highest compliment I can get. (laughs) 
I'll definitely keep you posted. Now I'm definitely going to check out these singles because I didn't know that they had singles, new singles. So thanks for that. Um, unfortunately, my random identifier is not music related and it really is going to be me airing a grievance. Um, Ooh, I like that more. It's against a neighbor of okay. mine. So hopefully this neighbor of mine does not listen to text. <laughs> that would be funny though. Very She awkward. absolutely doesn't. She's not, she's not. A, a podcast listener, I, I think. Um, so it feels like a safe space for me to air this grievance. Um, <laughs> but hopefully you guys have my back if it's not. Um, anyways, so I have a dog named Bandit. I love her. She's so adorable. Um, and if you don't know what Bandit looks like, um, a photo of her will be in the show notes. Um, she is a part dox, like half dachshund, half mini Australian shepherd. And so she's like, you know, long and low to the ground. So like kind of like kind of physically like a corgi, but a little more svelte, I might say, than like some of the thicker, thicker boys and girls you see out there. Um, And my neighbor recently has made a couple comments body shaming my dog um, and calling by calling her a fatso. No. And she's like, "Uh oh, not today, fatso, as Bandit approaches. (laughs) the gate no i know bandit's been kind of self-conscious about her weight lately so that's gotta hit hard she knows what she's saying and i'm just like you know i didn't think i'd feel so defensive about my dog's uh body um and the comments around it but like the first thing out of my mouth was like she just went to the vet and is a very healthy weight like (laughs) (laughs) immediately like getting super defensive I'm like okay I this is totally not important but if you're out there um and you're someone who body shames dogs cut it out because it really disturbs the owners um please stop the best part is she probably thought it was like kind of an endearing nickname that she tried to come up with and that's (laughs) like that's the word that came out and now she's stuck using it Hey, that's so I'm like Tubbs is way cuter or way better. Like, why not Tubbs? Like, not everyone thinks as quick as you, Caitlin. Oh, you, you know, I guess not. I guess you know, not everyone can be me. <laughs> what my sentence. best friend has a little Chewini, and oh my she's she's a little overweight. I will say, um, for her that's dog so. that size, <laughs> no, but. <laughs> we call her chonker oh yes. my god that's, that's an endearing that's endearing i like that i like that that's so just as like i feel like it's like an insult from the 90s like what are you gonna do eat another twinkie fatso like i just can't it definitely is chonk is way more forward thinking than yes fatso. it is way more progressive start replace fatso with chonk that's the new hashtag <laughs> Chonker is the new fatso. Okay, folks. Well, that is it for Tech Swamp. If you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head on over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. We're going to have notes on today's episode that includes links to all the good stuff. And we now have transcripts available. You can find them in our show notes as well as on podscribe.com. Just search Tech Swamp. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, we would love a rate and review. Five stars only, please. All right. Well, that's all for today, folks. Everyone say bye. 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 Bye.